0: This is not the media. This
1: is hell. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show, podcast, live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Richard Norwood. Richard, how was your weekend? I understand you have some new work-at-home projects you are working on. I'm doing well, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. I had a... Birthday weekend, I'll tell you about in a second. Nice.
0: Um, Yeah, this work from home has really been good for working on my home.
1: And? Is your house uh, breaking down as fast as my house is breaking down?
0: I had a few little breakdowns, but, uh, but mostly it's been a lot of yard work and doing a lot of projects. But one of the projects that I'm working on right now, you might have a small interest in. Yes. I have... A big box of uh, baseball cards from my childhood that I'm going through and cataloging and indexing. And, no kidding. And I have almost a complete 1976 collect uh, card collection. No kidding. I'm about uh, I'm about 70 cards short, so that's like one tenth of the uh, of the overall you know thing. But yeah, so I have a, I have a bunch of cards from the you know. 70, uh, 75 through like 79
1: or whatever. That's very cool. Very cool. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny. Are they all in pretty bad shape? No, they're in
0: pretty good shape. Wow. By, by no means mint condition, but, <laughs> but, but, but they're in good condition. Mostly they just sat in a box or a desk drawer for, you know, decades. And, uh, uh, so, you know, yeah, I have to check out the, uh, see what I want to do with them if they have any value or, Whatever.
1: Yeah, I had uh, about four or five 40-pound laundry detergent boxes of baseball, oh. football, uh-huh. hockey, yeah. basketball. I had ABA cards that were these oversized ABA cards. I had cards from the 50s. Oh, uh, a, a An old friend of my yeah. family passed away. Right. And he had left entire sets of 1920s baseball cards. Sure, to me okay and something happened After he died Somebody got the power of attorney over this guy Right And I never saw anything from it
0: Yeah, that's too bad I, 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 I sadly I had, a bu- I had another box of like duplicates And I think I just gave it away To some, somebody you know, on Craigslist mm-hmm. or whatever Because I didn't really want it And didn't think it had any value So
1: I gave some of my leftover ones to one of my nephews mm-hmm. Thinking that they had absolutely no value whatsoever right. And he was like Did you know that there was a Pete Rose Rookie card in there And I was like Well it was your dad's Not mine So uh, Cause that's way Too old for me uh, Thanks to everyone By the way For allowing me To indulge this weekend And take a day off For my birthday My girly made me A big birthday breakfast Incredible dinner She got me this pair Of long underwear That is the most Comfortable pair Of long ad- underwear I've ever worn So that's pretty much What I've been Wearing since I opened that package She also got me a Zaha Hadid book From the Tashin series on architects Which is fantastic I now have four of those books Including the Bauhaus, Corbusier, Eames volumes And my girly tried to get me a light hoodie With a sports team's logo on the front Instead what she got me What she got in the mail was a light hoodie With one sports team's logo on the chest And another team's name From an entirely different league Playing a completely different sport Down the hood so that was returned. More importantly, Richard, do you have this week's question from hell for our listeners?
0: Yes, I do. This week's hangover cure. No,
1: this week's question from hell first. Oh. <laughs> <You're>, uh... <laughs> Sorry, jumped the gun there for you, sir. <laughs> What's this week's question from hell?
0: That's on a whole other page. <laughs>
1: yes, it is. <laughs> well, I'll tell people what it is. if uh, you. Uh,
0: here it is. Uh... uh... You have to get to the top. Oh, yes. This week's question from hell is, what did you get, Chuck, for his birthday?
1: What did you get me for my birthday? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new gray-on-black This Is Hell face mask. You can check out the new gray-on-black This Is Hell face mask by going to thisishell.com, clicking on support, and leave your answer to this week's question from hell at Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to and, us.
0: And uh, and I'll just say, your mom and these nuts are taken.
1: <laughs> uh, Richard will be sharing your answer. Answers to this week's question from Hell. following our guest. Speaking of which, on today's show, well, let's get to the hangover cure real quick. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell, and Richard has this week's hangover cure. Yes,
0: this week's hangover cure is a pickle brine Bloody Mary.
1: Sounds actually pretty good.
0: A hangover remedy made popular in Poland and Russia before its arrival in the U.S., We have offered Pickle Brine and a Bloody Mary as hangover cures in the past, but never, to the best of our knowledge, have we suggested combining the two. According to Healthline.com, pickle juice contains sodium and potassium, both of which are important electrolytes that may be lost due to excessive alcohol intake. Therefore, drinking pickle juice could theoretically help treat and correct electrolyte imbalance, which may decrease hangover symptoms. The brine suggested in an article at Chowhound, how to build a Bloody Mary bar is the brine from garnishes like pickled carrots, cucumbers, pepadoos, or the Italian marinades found in jarred antichokes or other preserved vegetables. Pepadoos? That's what it says on my page
1: <laughs> <here>. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Continue.
0: <laughs> Meanwhile, several sources state Bloody Mary's help with hangovers through its combination of a heavy vegetable base to settle the stomach, salt to pr- replenish the electrolytes, and alcohol to relieve head and body aches. That makes it this week's hangover cure, a pickle brine Bloody Mary.
1: Which sounds really fantastic. On today's show, breaking up corporations, especially big corporations, big enough to have attained monopoly or near monopoly status is bad for the company it's bad for its shareholders it's bad for the economy it's bad for the market when it comes down to it it's just messy so who wants to go through a breakup when you can avoid it by promising to never drop the hammer Well, the problem with that is the monopolistic relationship is even worse for society than any imagined horrors those who oppose antitrust laws can imagine. And they imagine a lot, like breaking up monopolies having a negative impact on investors or the long-term sustainability of the business. The divesting can actually lead to more competition and innovation. Breaking up can actually be good for business, no matter what CEOs may be arguing for their own Ego-driven motives We'll learn how breaking up is easy to do And we should be doing it a lot When we speak in a few With law scholar Rory Van Lew, Who wrote the Cornell Law Review article In defense of breakups Administering a radical remedy Rory was a guest suggestion Here on This Is Hell By listener Daniel T Roy a law professor at Boston University His research focuses on consumer transactions with a particular interest in the intersection between technology and regulation. Professor Van Loo served on the implementation team that set up the Consumer Finance, Financial Protection Bureau. Helping to build the framework for supervision of large banks He also taught disputed systems design at Harvard Law School And conducted empirical studies at McKinsey & Company For multinational corporations and mergers and acquisitions Marketing and organizational design And yes, we're also pretty sure, but not positive This is the first time we've had someone on This is How Who Worked at McKinsey You can follow Rory on Twitter At Rory Van RoryVanLieu Putting people before Profits, which turns out to be A horrible business model since 1996 This is hell and if you want to help Us with this stupid Business model, you can subscribe to Our weekly Friday Patreon podcast Which features a classic interview From our nearly 25 year archive Of shows that is currently not Available online as we work to rebuild Our catalog of shows and make them accessible To everyone for free Plus, you get a new monologue from me on each Patreon podcast. There are also over 150 Patreon podcasts currently available. When subscribing at Patreon.com/slash ThisIsHell, so it's like getting a whole extra year of This Is Hell. On last Friday's Patreon podcast, which you can hear again by subscribing at Patreon.com/slash ThisIsHell, President Trump got coronavirus, and it wasn't even my birthday yet. Uh, we also shared a. 2005 interview with the late great Andre Vichek who sadly passed away recently and apparently all that script suddenly disappeared and I have no idea why but I also talked about my birthday and how I was born born on a Wednesday which means Wednesday's child is full of woe and it reminded me that even though it was just my birthday This is Hell On our last show here at Thisishell.com Listener Kevin B. emailed us And he concluded by writing If Boss Tweet, by which he must mean President Trump If Boss Tweet does steal another election It may come down to Mr. Kurtz's final words from the heart of darkness By Joseph Conrad The horror, the horror Exterminate all the brutes Kevin's comment led me to wonder What fiction might be best to read In the time of virus This time of virus This time of climate change This time of racialized police violence You know, the potpourri of crises That are now normal And we got some great responses Because you, our listeners Absolutely rock when it comes to guest suggestions And apparently when it comes to recommendations for fiction during a time of crisis Alan has a suggestion for fiction During the pandemic He writes, hi Chuck, love your show You and Alex do a fantastic job Richard as well Today was my first visit to your website And I was excited to see all the information there And how easily navigable it was In particular, Jeff Dorchin's Moment of Truth section with transcripts Thank you for that well, You are welcome, but you should be thanking Alex and Jeff for that. I recently read, Alan says, I recently read Jack London's The Iron Heel, written in 1908, one of the few pre-dystopia dystopian novels. One main reason I enjoyed it and many of London's novels is because I live in Northern California. A considerable portion of the story takes place in familiar locales. I'm suggesting it to you and Alex and everyone because another part of the story takes place in Chicago. I always enjoy a book a little more if it's set in my own stomping grounds. If you're not familiar with the book, it describes the people, places, events during a socialist revolution against an oligarchical totalitarian society. Thanks, be well, and stay healthy. Allen. so our first suggestion is Jack London's pre-dystopian, dystopian novel, The Iron Heel, about a socialist revolution against an oligarchical totalitarian, totalitarian society. Yep, that sounds about right when it comes to the kind of fiction we would expect our listeners to suggest. Brad also has a fiction recommendation for reading during the coronavirus pandemic. Brad writes, I suggest Edgar Allan Poe's The Mask of the Red Death a fitting allegory about nobles throwing a party in seclusion to avoid a plague, only to be stalked and killed by a stranger who ultimately proves to be no one at all. The Red Menace is a bitch. Brad, aren't you supposed to say... Spoiler alert before saying the Red Menace is a bitch But other than spoiling the end of the book That does sound like some good reading During a plague, Edgar Allan Poe's The Mask of the Red Death About nobles throwing a party in seclusion To avoid a plague Only be stalked and killed by a stranger Flying Needle also sent a fiction recommendation For reading at home While a virus is lurking about outdoors Needle writes Complicity by Ian Banks is a brutal murder mystery about a killer who attacks monsters of corporate and governmental greed and fashions a murder in the manner of their destruction. It's written in first person from the perspective of a journalist, and second person in regards to the killer. So you, my friend, are the killer. I love this author. He is sharp, very entertaining, and utterly discomforting. So Flying Needle suggests Complicity by Ian Banks, a brutal murder mystery about a killer who attacks monsters of corporate and governmental greed and fashions a murder in the manner of their destruction. Brad suggested Edgar Allan Poe's The Mask of the Red Death, and Alan recommended Jack London's The Iron Heel. Last Thursday's guest, sociologist William I. Robinson, starts uh, his book, which we discussed with William, The Global Police State, by mentioning... Everything is Known by Liza Elliott, which describes a future dystopia where five global mega corporations, dubbed affiliations rule the planet. So I would throw Liza Elliott's Everything is Known onto that book pile as well. If you have any fic- fiction suggestions or recommendations to read during this time of many, many crises, share them with us, and we will share them with everyone. All you have to do is Email your reading material choice to chuck at thisishell.com Chuck at thisishell.com Coming up, breaking up huge monopolistic corporations is not as hard or as bad as we are being led to believe We'll also have rotten history and tell you who else, who's going to be on tomorrow's show And give you some of the answers that you've sent us so far to this week's question from hell Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Hell, sanity, and talk radio. So clearly, sadly, Gnome's gone insane. This is hell. Whenever a corporation becomes too big, controlling too much of a market share, to the point of undermining competitiveness, which in turn hurts motivation and innovation, whenever a company verges on or attains monopoly status, we're told they're too big to fail. That if they do, it will be bad, not only for the CEOs and shareholders, but for all their employees, and it will be a loss for society and be a huge hit on the economy in general. Here to explain why breaking up big corporations is not that hard of a thing to do, and In fact, it happens all the time, and the benefits the business, its shareholders, and to all of us can be, well, huge. Law scholar Rory Van Leeu wrote the Cornell Law Review article in defense of breakups administering a radical remedy. Rory was suggested to us by listener Daniel T. So thank you, Daniel, for suggesting Rory as a guest. Rory is a law professor at Boston University, and his research focuses on consumer transactions with a particular interest in the intersection between technology and regulation. You can follow Rory on Twitter at Rory Van Lu. Welcome to This Is How, Rory.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: First, uh, our condolences for the loss of your friend, Anne Fleming, who appeared on our show back in January of 2018 to talk about her book, City of Debtors, Century of Fringe Finance. Listeners can hear our talk at thisishell.com when you search on Fleming. So my condolences to you uh, on the loss of your very good friend, Anne Fleming. But uh, before we just say the things that you're supposed to say when somebody passes along. Where do you see your work when you are talking about uh, breaking up monopolistic businesses? Where do you see your work intersecting with, crossing over with her work on a century of fringe finance in her book, City of Debtors?
2: You know, we, we've both read each other's work over time. And one of the big reasons is that we're focused on markets and making market transactions work better, but with an emphasis on helping society and especially uh, the distribution of wealth uh, be improved through market mechanisms. And so Anne was looking at the growth as as you fleshed out in your interview with her, the growth of a modern multi-billion dollar national small loan industry, and how those industries might cause people who really are, are just scraping by to pay more than they need to uh, in interest uh, for, for loans. And a lot of my work would have a similar effect only for a broader portion of the population. So there's some evidence that monopolies, especially in the financial sector and in other sectors, might disproportionately harm low and middle income consumers and thus households. And so both of our work shares that kind of, let's try to make markets work better for people and society and impulse trying to make markets
1: work better for society. And you write, unfounded fears of doing harm through breakups have led to either harmful inaction or weaker remedies that are more likely to prove wasteful. If widespread unfounded resistance to administering breakups has contributed substantially to the presence of monopolies, it has imposed considerable costs on society. What are those costs on society? What are those costs on society that monopolies cause that we might not recognize in our daily life as costs to society caused by monopolies
2: the the costs are many potentially and the most obvious one and and the one that's the focus of economic and legal analyses in antitrust is price right just the the basic likelihood that we're paying more as a result of monopoly power but it can also affect a lot of other aspects of our lives that we're just not aware of. A growing number of people are talking about privacy implications. You know, these if, if you're the only game in town, you probably don't feel the need to protect people's privacy as much as you would if a bunch of different companies were competing for the same business. Also, customer service. I mean, Comcast was notorious for having horrible customer service. Again, because it was often the only option, literally the only option in much of America for uh, cable and Internet and so on. And in fact, there are laws in most states that require Comcast to have a live human being available during regular hours, regular business hours, because they kind of didn't really feel like they needed to have somebody there to answer your calls and, and address your concerns. Uh, and so uh, and there's also innovation concerns and so on. So so all of these are potentially problematic, I'd say, from a kind of societal perspective, the one that we tend to worry about most or the one that implicates the distribution of wealth and so on the most is, is just the transfer of wealth from uh, from consumers to large companies.
1: How much more power do monopolies then have today? You were mentioning surveillance. That's certainly not a technology that they had at the, and during the time of Standard Oil, which we'll get to in a moment, or even with the at breakup. So how much more power can monopolies have today than they did in the past?
2: Certainly a great deal more in terms of the parts of our lives that they touch, right? So- Uh, In the past, in order to sell your goods in the marketplace, you wouldn't have had to have gone through, uh, you know, one commercial entity to the same extent as you might today through Amazon. Similarly, if you wanted to meet up with other people and communicate, uh, you, you know, Facebook today uh, has has a, it's a, a lot more of a, a kind of gatekeeper role for speech. Facebook and a few others, you know, Twitter and so on. So, you know, th- that's that's the the services they're arguably offering the population, the public. But but to, more to the heart of your question, the surveillance point. I mean, just thinking about all the information they have and their ability to leverage that to know our tastes and preferences and vulnerabilities in terms of which kinds of pricing tactics might we be most susceptible to, given our particular set of psychological biases, uh, you know, there's, there's just a, a much more powerful weapon in, in their hands in the form of concentrated data.
1: And you write that the uh, predominant discomfort with breaking up of potential monopolies with breakups as a remedy is rooted in two misperceptions. The first is that the government is disastrous at administering breakups. The second is that the risks of a breakup are tremendous. Neither of these is supported in the literature, particularly once breakups are viewed in terms of how they would and should be administered today rather than how they were implemented decades ago. Can we simply return to a, a, a past regulation regime when it comes to breakups? And if not, why does that old system fall short? Because I know that far too often we just look towards, you know, let's just put the New Deal in the 21st century, problem solved. And I know that, that it, it's just not that simple. So can we simply put an old past regulation regime in place? And if not, why does that old system fall short?
2: Yeah, I, th- I think it's it's tough to find a point in history where we'd want to go back to in terms of the institutional capabilities of our antitrust enforcers. We might find times when we'd want to adopt more of their willingness to actually exert the full force of antitrust laws, but their capabilities in executing them were not always particularly strong in the sense of, once it came time to execute the the breakup, say of a company, you know, it, it's it, it, there's a lot of debate about this, but I'd say overall there was often much to be desired in terms of how long it took to f- finalize, say the AT&T breakup or uh, even Standard Oil, uh, which I think you know they did a reasonable job with. Uh, you know, we know so much more today about how to break up companies and I would rather kind of just take where we are right now and say we need to a shift in our mindset and let's leverage all the modern tools that we have and learn from those lessons of the past. Um, but, but, but get rid of the, the kind of shackles, the intellectual shackles um, and lack of rigorous thinking that ha- we've adopted along the way that somehow leads us to some almost superstitious dismissal of the possibility of breaking up companies.
1: Is the intellectual opposition to breakups growing or with the growth of companies like Google, Amazon and Facebook, is that intellectual opposition to breaking up monopolies fading?
2: right now, at this point in time, I'd say it's fading. It is fading, though, off of a very high peak of opposition to breakups. And I would say it's not fading enough, potentially. And the reason I say that is, although you hear a lot of popular calls for breakups, and indeed, I would expect our Agencies, either the DOJ or the FTC or both, to be pursuing some calling for breakups of some of, of the largest tech companies within the next few weeks or at least months. Even despite all of that, I don't think it should take a, almost feverish public discontent to get us to that place, right? And and even once they move forward. Uh, With with the lawsuit, you know, there's there's still this just incredible uh, bed of intellectual and expertise opposition to breaking companies up and i and even from very progressive thinkers it's not it doesn't fall as neatly as you might think into kind of conservative um, and liberal ideologies but you find a lot of progressive uh you know very uh, big proponents of more aggressive antitrust saying yeah but let's let's just be let's not really break up these companies. Let's just try to to make sure that they provide access. And I'm not dismissing those uh, wholesale, but I'm saying but the reasoning for for going there to, for bypassing breakups is is just is still is still pretty strongly embedded in in in, in kind of concerns that I, th- I think are unfounded. So so it's fading. Um, but but not it's not clear that it's faded enough. And you write about
1: the prevailing assumption that breakups are extreme and prohibitively difficult to administer. Is that misunderstanding intentional? Is there any campaign to purposely mislead us into thinking that they are administrable or is this something unadministrable or is this something that is more a reflection of the way that society feels about the relationship between business and government?
2: You know, it's, it's really hard to tell and, and, and also with something that's as pervasive as what we're talking about like with so many people in government in uh, in the the judiciary in academia that hold this belief that kind of casually observe that breaking up companies is like trying to uh, unscramble eggs breaking up previously merged companies is like unscrambling eggs it's it just it's it, I don't think that there's a, a, a pervasive successful campaign that led to where we are right now. I think there's a mix, you know, surely some people seized some kind of, uh, of political moment or maybe misinformation along the way and contributed to this. There might have been funding of research, you know, I, I don't really have a, a lot of insight in, into the political side of this historically. And I don't know that anybody does because it's so complex. It certainly builds on the, the resistance to breakups certainly builds on a lot of other what we know to be very concerted efforts to kind of um, build law and economics, especially in the, the Chicago school uh, and and kind of Impose certain, you know, deregulatory, or, 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 I should say, support deregulatory agendas. But I, I think this, this is actually just, at its core, a lot broader than that. I think there's a, an intuitive resistance to, or, or willingness to kind of jump on a few bad examples. You know, the human mind is so subject to narratives, right? And, and, and it's, it's easy to, to cast a narrative based on some of the, the past. Failures in breaking up large companies by the government to point to all these mistakes or or um, slowness or inefficiencies that occurred when we tried to break up those companies, and then once you have an easy narrative, I think even very well intentioned people can uh, can without any without any kind of nefarious uh, kind of influence all of a sudden be persuaded uh, on the merits in their mind that, yeah, they, like we don't want government coming in and, and and breaking up private companies when they've made all these mistakes in the past. And and so I think it's just a mix of... of you kind of have like a perfect storm that's, that's set us up for rejecting breakups.
1: So do you think that kind of anti-government ideology, does that lead to the societal problems that are caused by monopolies? But those people who are embracing that... Same anti-government ideology may not recognize the societal problems that are caused by monopolies.
2: I, you know, I, I think there's, I think there's an uh, an anti-government ideology that's on both sides of the political spectrum, if you will. That is, you know, and, and it differs in its form. But I, I think there's, there's uh, just an anti-big government groups certainly that that in some ways would be naturally inclined to not want the government to, to kind of intervene. Although we we should get into this later, but I think there's an argument that that group, if anything, should be more uh, supportive of, of breakups than the alternative remedies. Right. Um, But putting that aside for the moment, then there's also another group that's, that's, I would, I would say is, is almost pro big government, but, Uh, is, um, is also suspicious of, you know, certain governmental excesses and other ways and maybe almost just, just is, is quick to jump on, um, you know, it's almost like you you could, you could divide up the, the areas in which people might want government. And, And so people who might support government in terms of, you know, say, um, public assistance, uh or uh, other areas like that like so, so like the social social safety net might uh, at the same time be a little bit more hesitant in an area like uh, like business regulation um, in in part because they I I, don't, I I can't diagnose the pathology necessarily, but I, I do sense that there's this kind of almost um, a consensus that was formed because of and maybe it has to do in part because people go into say the post office and and a lot of people have bad experiences at the post office and then so it's i think there's like a susceptibility to 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 be convinced that the government is not doing something well on both sides of the political spectrum.
1: We are speaking with law scholar Rory Van Lu who wrote the Cornell Law Review article In Defense of Breakups, Administering a Radical Remedy. Professor Van Loo served on the implementation team that set up the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, helping to build the framework for supervision of large banks. He has also taught dispute systems design at Harvard Law School and conducted empirical studies at McKinsey & Company for multinational corporations and mergers and acquisitions, marketing, and organizational design. You can follow Rory on Twitter at Rory Van Loo. There are a couple of things that you said in your last answer that I definitely want to follow up on. Let's get to the first one that you were mentioning. Uh, What can breakups? What do you think that they can offer anti-government types? Why should anti-government types, you know, I see this on Fox News all the time, that if you are breaking up Amazon, if you're breaking up Facebook, if you're breaking up Google, you are punishing people for being successful. It's a punishment for success. So how can you make something that is being framed as a punishment for success? How can that be something that could be attractive to anti-government types?
2: yeah so okay, so that particular argument I find to be, and by the way, it's it's made on both sides of the at least um antitrust intellectual spectrum right. i just i just I find it to be really baffling, quite frankly, and the reason is that how can we say that we're. Well, first of all, t- let me let me tease out a little bit more what's meant by "let's not punish success." The real core concern there, it, it was articulated um, eloquently by uh, the late Justice Scalia, who said who said in an opinion the mere possession of monopoly power and the concomitant at charging of monopoly prices is not. Only not unlawful, it's an important element of the free market system. So Scalia wanted uh, uh, companies to be able to charge monopoly prices, at least for a short period, because it, he said, uh, attracts business acumen in the first place, right? And so when people say, let's not punish success, I think there's you know, there's there's certainly like a popular view of that, but the, I think the more intellectual reason is we want to motivate people to want to start companies and build them and innovate and so on, right? And and that intellectual basis for that point of objection just makes no sense to me because if you were to think about what would happen to Bezos today or <laughs> Zuckerberg, if you forced Zuckerberg to to sell Instagram, you know, would would anybody sit there and say like, yeah, no, I don't think I want to go start a business because what happened to zuckerberg might happen to me i'm going to end up like still one of the richest people ever in the history of of the world. And, um, but, but I'd have to maybe sell a business that I later acquired, you know, that, or, or Bezos to, you know, it's just, if it, cloud computing had to be somehow separated from the core, uh, retail business of Amazon, it just, it just doesn't really pass almost in, in my mind, the, the, uh, just the, the basic, uh, kind of giggle test in some ways. Um, no, no, the, the, uh, the other side of, you know, don't punish success and so on like you, we can argue about, um, the fairness aspects of it, but that's not what we, when we, when conservatives at least, especially, but all all on economics folks in general tend to talk about these things. We're not talking about a fairness justice argument or they're not. I mean, if, if, if we're saying we should shift the whole discussion to a fairness argument, let's not punish success. Let's, you know, consider all these justice and fairness elements. Then I think that's a whole revolution for antitrust. And I don't think it's where most of, of the, that crowd would want that, would want antitrust to go because it, you know, it's, it's the Chicago school that's kind of pushed towards a, a, a pure economics, market-based analysis view of antitrust. Okay, so putting that aside, I wanna get to the second part of your question, um, which is you know, what does this have, what do, what do breakups have to offer to those who might be anti-government? And, and here's the simple answer. The alternatives to breakups involve a lot more government involvement so the alternatives to breakups like mandating access remedies you know we're going to make sure we're going to make it so that Facebook has to uh, give access to uh, all competitors that want to interface with Facebook users or whatever it may be we're going to make make it so that Amazon needs to uh, allow uh, other competitors or merchants or so on to um to sell their goods on amazon whenever they want you know i'm, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that and indeed in some of sometimes breakups will be needed alongside these other solutions but all of the alternatives to breakups would require basically uh a ongoing kind of oversight and regulation right if with a breakup you can say okay we're just going to break you up and and let the pieces fall where they will we're going to do our best to make sure they fall in like a, you know a, an orderly manner uh but um, and then we'll we'll let the market take care of it right and so that's kind of the, like breakups are the 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 free market remedy the alternatives are the the kind of heavy government oversight remedies
1: and you talk about breakups as a form of deterrence that it's supposed to make people to not make corporations to not have monopolistic tendencies well how much how well does that work how well does the threat of breakups work when it comes to not leading to monopolistic tendencies when we can see that amazon google facebook these companies are verging on monopolies so what explains the deterrence factor of antitrust laws not being effective seemingly not being effective at this time so
2: well first of all the most feared remedy for ceos and especially founders like i say zuckerberg or bezos by far historically has been the breakup like no founder of a company wants their you know baby broken up if you will uh, so when you've taken off the most feared remedy when you've taken the most feared remedy off the table all of a sudden, the alternatives are are not that unappealing. I mean, they're still they still would not want to be forced to share access or whatever the alternatives may be. But antitrust loses a lot of its deterrent power, um, but because of this, what what I see is kind of a, almost a pathology resisting breakups. Uh, so so that's that's the short answer of why it hasn't one of the reasons why antitrust hasn't worked, but, but, but also I I don't want to make this, I, you know, my project and, 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 this discussion is largely focused on the remedy of breakups. I I don't want to lose sight of, and and this isn't my focus really, but there's a broader, there's a broader set of issues that others have kind of argued about extensively. And that's whether or not antitrust as a whole has just been too hesitant, too tentative, has under deterred over the years by simply by not taking action by not seeing the need to use antitrust. And that's a whole larger debate that I think this remedies issue, this breakups issue plays into. And I'm happy to talk more about that, but I just want to separate those two out and say, so like there's two steps really like first we, we need, we need antitrust authorities to be willing to exercise the full extent of the law when it would help consumers. Second. Uh, once they do bring an antitrust action and are successful, they need to be able to pursue the, the most uh, feared and, and I think one of the, you know, the most important remedy of breakups, at least in a lot of contexts, uh, in order for, for the full legal architecture of antitrust to work.
1: And there is this logic, as you say, in the pathology uh, the, you can't unscramble eggs. But you say they unscramble eggs all the time and you write current antitrust debates, fail to consider the insights generated by routine private sector breakups. One third of mergers and acquisitions, uh, more appropriately termed reorganizations, are divestitures. These divestitures include some of the largest deals of the last decade, including Fox's sale of the 20th century Fox production arm for $71 billion to Disney, eBay's off of PayPal, Hewlett-Packard's decision to split itself down the middle to create two of the 100 largest companies in the United States, despite meaningful differences, the prevalence of these deals alone is informative because what antitrust observers have come to view as drastic is commonplace in the business world. So do these breakups, first, do they prove the government does not have to threaten antitrust law enforcement because business will do it themselves? I think you pretty much just answered that question. Or is that threat what leads to businesses breaking up?
2: So the, the breakups that happen currently, I mean, there's a bunch of different reasons why companies break themselves up. You know, sometimes it's because it's, it was a conglomerate in the first place and there there weren't necessarily synergies there. You know, that's, that's kind of the, the more traditional type. There's a more uh, – more recently there's been a, a shift – you know, like when, when Hewlett Packard split itself up to become two separate independent Fortune 100 companies at one point, the it really wasn't the CEO necessarily that was driving it, but the board and, and the executives, they decided that, that doing so would make the company nimbler. And in today's fast-moving markets, they thought that two somewhat smaller companies, if you can call a Fortune 100 company small, uh, would would just fare better from a competitive standpoint uh, than than one larger behemoth now the, then, then the question becomes so what kinds of companies break themselves up and and why don't more companies do it uh, more monopolies say and I think that the reason is there 's a few reasons why companies maybe don 't break themselves up enough, and one is that uh, I think CEOs and and executives uh, tend to want to build their empires, right? And so there, I think there's a, a really strong case to be made that there's a number of company, large companies out there that would actually be better off, or at least their shareholders and owners would be better off and probably the consumers and the public if they broke themselves up, putting antitrust aside even, uh, just because they'd have more efficient, kind of better functioning companies. Now, uh, that, that's all a little bit separate from the antitrust breakups, but I think it's it's relevant Because it helps to normalize what the government would be doing, right? So we, uh, antitrust scholars, when you read the literature, uh, it's almost as if this whole, these, you know, uh, these thousands of private breakups that happen, you know, divestitures each year, it's almost like they don't exist, we we talk about antitrust scholars. I shouldn't say we, because I'm not. I'm, I'm kind of a little bit of an outsider on the outskirts of antitrust. Uh, the, when antitrust scholars talk about breakups, they're usually speaking about. AT&T in their early 80s and Standard Oil, <laughs> at the beginning of the 1900s, and and they're not they're acting as if the the last time that a breakup occurred was of, of a large company was in in the 1980s with AT&T, and 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 I think one of the th- things I'm hoping to do with this paper is to say hey look there's this whole universe of breakups out there that we can learn a lot from. And in doing so, maybe we'll be a little less scared about taking this step because it turns out that overall companies increase in value pretty substantially when they're broken up. And so the um, so if, if our big concern is that we're going to smash you know, success or, or harm shareholders or ruin the economy, A, that hasn't happened historically with AT&T and San Antonio and so on, but B... It happens all the time today. Breakups happen all the time, uh, voluntarily uh, in other contexts. And, you know, and everybody's just fine. And so let's if, if we think that's what's best for competition, let's just take that step.
1: So is the issue then one of who is imposing the divestiture? If it's, you know, if it's business voluntarily doing it, then that's fine. Is the opposition then more? We just don't want the government to force us to do this thing that is good for us?
2: I I you know I, I think this gets to a bit of a double standard that we have you know there's there's no doubt that the private sector is overall probably more skilled and better at things they have larger more resources uh in say a, a given company has more resources a given large company than than the FTC or DOJ would in administering a breakup. Uh, they probably have just people with overall more maybe talent and skills, although there's a lot of talent in, in the federal government as well. So that's not the whole story. But I think people have a perception that the, the public sector or the government would not necessarily do this well, right? Right. It, but in the, one of the things that in looking into the private dis- divestitures that became very clear to me, and actually I should say I, I used to work on it, uh, these kinds of deals uh, what, before I went down the academic path. And this is why I, I think my my radar was, was kind of sensitive to this, it, this argument and some of its flaws as I saw it. Is that when I saw people saying, "Oh, well, the government's going to mess it up. It's gonna, there's going to be all these unexpected delays, and it's going to be really costly, and so on." I, I just remember thinking, "Well, that's that's how it is in the private sector too. So, are you holding government to a standard that's higher than the private sector? Like, it's okay if businesses break themselves up and it's costly and lengthy, but when the government does it for antitrust purposes, it's not okay." Um, you know that. If, if, that's, if we want to have a double standard, let's at least make that explicit. But that's not how people are talking about it. So, so as I see it, uh, we're holding the government in antitrust breakups to a standard of performance that is unrealistic just given the nature of what breakups are, are like in, in the private sector.
1: You've been talking about how much we do focus on Standard Oil, which was a breakup that happened back in 1911, and also the AT&T breakup. And both of these, the way that they're framed by those who are opposed to breakups, are shown as failures, that they hurt the economy, that they hurt shareholders, that they hurt workers, they hurt everybody. But in fact, as you do your analysis, it looks like both worked out very well. So what does you know framing everything around... Uh, a 1911 decision when it comes to standard oil what does that reveal to you about what you call the anti-breakup pathology what what does it say to you when not only are they using uh, an example that's 100 years old over 100 years old but also an example that they give you a very misleading framing and a very misleading narrative to point to argue that
2: it was a failure yeah you know i th- i think it more than anything else it reveals the silo within which i think a lot of these conversations have happened so if if you're not paying attention to private divestitures i mean the ones that are undertaken voluntarily and you're only focusing on the antitrust landscape maybe it makes sense to you know, go back uh, over hundred years to Standard Oil, or forty years almost to uh, to AT and T, uh, and and use that as your main evidence, or at least uh, your main examples. And so, uh, I th- I think that when people are going back to these examples, you know, it, it reveals two things, um, it, or, or it, it has two main influences, I should say. One is that it becomes really, really hard to draw any firm conclusions. There, there have been conferences held about some of these past breakups, and some of the leading kind of economists and others are really divided as to whether the world was better off or not because of these interventions. I'd say a lot of people uh, think, think that we were right to, to break up these large companies. But regardless of that, one thing you can't deny is that the oil industry thrived in the aftermath of the breakup of Standard Oil. I mean, Rockefeller, uh, his wealth skyrocketed after <laughs> Standard Oil was broken up, and shareholders of at and they received handsome returns on their shares if they held on to them, and the U S telecom industry was world leading after the breakup at AT&T. And so it's hard to make a case that somehow innovation is harmed. Uh, but, uh, but it so it kind of, cl- in my mind, it kind of clouds the debate somewhat is, is one big problem with focusing on these, these older examples. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I guess, I guess the other thing that that's, a little bit of an issue with focusing on on uh, standard oil and AT and T is that it it just kind of um, it makes it seem so unusual, like such a rare beast to to pursue a breakup. Um, and so uh, I think um, what does it reveal to use these old examples? It just it just reveals that that we 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 aren't we aren't thinking as Comprehensively and rigorously About breakups as we should
1: You write the implications of a more informed view Of breakup administrabil- administrability Are far reaching A misguided view of breakups May help explain what many observers see As decades of weak antitrust enforcement Leading to cha- charges that Quote, the deck is stacked In favor of large powerful firms How stacked are the decks Or do we believe the decks are stacked When in reality they are not Does re- a reconsideration of break up administrability, reveal corporations may not be as powerful as we think they are?
2: You know, It's, it, it's, it's, it's hard to know where we are today exactly because you, you see the CEOs of the country's largest companies being hauled in front of Congress on a regular basis. There's kind of bipartisan opposition. At the same time, they're still largely getting away with you know what, what, whatever they decide to do, you know that until we see some kind of action being taken, I, it, I, I'm not really ready to. And and by the way, not just action taken for one or two individual companies that are subject to kind of almost universal criticism, but on a more regular basis, a willingness to take steps, even absent intense public pressure, I, I'm just not willing to conclude that antitrust is where it should be. And so, I, I think I, you know, I mentioned the, the the deck being stacked in favor of large corporations, mostly because that's a perception that's out there, and. To the extent that that's true, and again, I'm not really focusing on that step one process, uh, the step one in the process of concluding which companies are and aren't bad or good. I'm more focusing on once once we know that, that we have a problem with monopolies or whatever it may be, uh, let's... Be more willing to, to do what we need to do to get rid of that problem. Because I, I don't think a lot of people realize this, but monopolies are actually legal. <laughs> we, the, we have a, 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 an antitrust legal architecture that enables large companies to charge monopoly prices as long as they're not engaging in other conduct, such as exclusionary practices, as long as they didn't engage in, didn't purchase other companies to get there. Uh, In in uh, an anti-competitive manner. And so and so part of what I'm saying is, you know, let's let's use this remedy of breakups where we currently can under antitrust law. And I'm also saying maybe we want to reform antitrust laws to no longer allow monopolies to be legal and and let them charge monopoly prices if we have this remedy that actually works really well.
1: How much then does our – do our monopoly laws in the United States, how much do they contribute to the size of U.S. corporations and their power that they have around the world? Is the, it, are U.S. corporations as big and as powerful as they are because the United States doesn't have the kind of anti-monopoly rules that other countries have?
2: It's, it's hard to know the answer to that because we don't know the counterfactual, right? We don't know what would have happened – with a different set of monopoly laws, antitrust laws, but, you know, and also the United States is, is the leading economic power in the world, at least for the time being. And so it's, it's possible that, that um, even with more rigorous antitrust laws, we would still have a lot of really large and powerful companies. Uh, they just might look very different. They might be more willing to to invest in customer service. They might be more protective of privacy. they might be charging more competitive prices and uh, and and still be leading the world. I mean that's that's kind of what i'd I'd like to think that we'd have we'd still have a lot of the benefits of the current economic landscape, the current business sector um, with, with better antitrust laws, but there'd be more kind of almost more turnover, if you will. Uh, to draw an analogy, we, we often talk about um, term limits for, uh, for Congress or, uh, you know, the need to kind of in, do controlled burns to manage forests. And I'd like to see more churn in, in, in the private sector. And I think that's what we'd have. If, if we had stronger laws, but, but I don't know that we, I, I think we'd still have a lot of big companies even with more rigorous antitrust laws.
1: One last question for you, Rory. We've been speaking with law scholar Rory Van Loo, who wrote the Cornell Law Review article in defense of breakups, administering a radical remedy. You can follow Rory on Twitter, at Rory Van Loo. And thanks to listener Daniel T. for suggesting Rory as a guest on our show. As you know, our final question is always for our guest, the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. Our question from hell for you is... If fear of big, bad government leads to big, bad corporations, which we have far less oversight over than we do with corporations, uh, than we do with government, I should say, what can the government do to gain any public perception that it is, in fact, competent?
2: Well, for for one, it, it could start to break companies up from time to time and use as the metric of success something that is more reflective of what happens in the private sector. So rather than solely allowing the conversation to be dominated by critiques of the delays and the expenses involved, I'd like to see the government or commentators, whoever is discussing whatever actions are taken, to kind of take a step back and say, yeah, d- did did this company we broke up pay a billion dollars or two billion dollars to, to transition from, say, whatever monopoly we had to where we are today? Yes. But that's OK, folks, because so did Hewlett Packard when they broke themselves up. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I, I think it's I think it's a little bit of a perspective shift and a, a little bit more willingness to to guide the conversation to a place where, where we, we don't have a double standard anymore, where we recognize that um, the world's messy, it's imperfect. And if we make mistakes along the way to making the world a better place, you know, that's probably inevitable.
1: Rory, I cannot thank you enough for being On our show. Law scholar Rory Van Loo wrote the Cornell Law Review article in defense of breakups Administering a radical remedy. Again, thanks To listener Daniel T for suggesting Rory Because I've really enjoyed our conversation And finally, uh, again, condolences On the passing of your friend Anne Fleming People can find our interview with Anne By going to our website and searching on Her last name. It's a fantastic interview about Credit and debt that is just something That people should check
2: out. All right, thank you Yes, she, in fact, the last Communication I had with her was about this program and she mentioned that she had a great experience and uh, and so you know I'll, I'll forever associate this is hell with Anne Fleming and I can't imagine someone more deserving of a heaven and thanks so much for having me and to Daniel for recommending me
1: thank you very much I really appreciate it, Rory uh, take care and have a good week live from late capitalism where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing this is hell Richard can you remind us, what is this week's question from hell?
0: This week's question from hell is, what did you get, Chuck, for his birthday?
1: And I know you have a few answers from our listeners so far. Why don't you read, oh, I'm three, four, five of them, whatever you want to do.
0: Yes. Uh, Fabio says, an IOU oh, for his surplus value. Oh, that's IOU. <laughs> an
1: IOU for <laughs> Oh, very good.
0: Uh, Laddie says, an eighth once recreational Jedi Kush. (laughs) Okay. I can't even read this. I know. It just doesn't make sense. An eighth ounce of recreational Jedi Kush in Ferndale but I smoked and a pound of perch. At Pat O'Brien's that
1: I ate. Yeah, this is total references you to... You would have loved it. Yes, Eastside Detroit references. <laughs> I knew the bookie who ran Pat O'Brien's.
0: That uh, Barrett says, That Chinese SKS in the picture, I kept, I kept the weed... I'll keep the weed for myself. There you go. So the picture is a bunch of uh, marijuana wrapped up in a <laughs> Kalashnikov.
1: Nice. Mike
0: says... Gap Tooth Filling.
1: (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate that.
0: Zach says, Bitters. (laughs) Pete says, A crate full of empty liquor
1: bottles. (laughs) Sweet. That's what I drag out of the bar every morning.
0: They're still waiting for you at the bar. (laughs) See? (laughs) Do your job, hippie. (laughs) See?
1: (laughs) uh, Well,
0: how about one more? All right. Michael says... A verbalized heart emoji.
1: Ah, uh-huh, that's sweet. Let's leave it there. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new Gray on Black This is Hell face mask. You can check out the new Gray on Black This Is Hell face mask by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can see how everybody's responding to this week's question from hell. And you can leave your answer at our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash this is hell radio. You can tweet it to us at this is hell radio. You can email it to us at chuck at this is Chuck at hell.com, But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show When we are announcing this week's winner Following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby Gory, rotten history in early October 1937 83 years ago this week Troops, and it's always really rotten history when it starts the word troops Troops of the Dominican Republic engage in large-scale killing of Haitian people See, I told you. Along the border between the two countries that share the Caribbean island of Hispaniola, an island that's got to make you wonder what it was called before it was called Hispaniola. I mean, what the hell? There's no way. Nobody nobody called that Hispaniola until Whitey showed up. The carnage was ordered by the U.S.-backed Dominican dictator, aren't they all, Rafael Trujillo. Trujillo, who wanted to distract his country's population from their economic ruin after prices of the republic's key export, sugar, created in the Great Depression, and nothing quite distracts from the price of sugar like the wholesale killing of your neighbors. Trujillo, who was sensitive about his working-class origin, openly admired Adolf Hitler, and was so obsessed with race that he wore pancake makeup to lighten his skin. No wonder he was an ally of the United States. He loved the home of eugenics. In speeches, he pushed the idea that Dominicans, who tended to be of mixed European and African descent, were biologically and culturally superior to Haitians, whose ancestry was mainly African. In other words, Trujillo was a first-class a-hole. But despite Trujillo's insistence on their differences. The Dominicans and Haitians who lived in the island's interior mixed freely between the two countries, trading in each other's markets and speaking both Haitian Creole and Spanish. So the people were getting along just fine. Thousands of Haitians also crossed the border every day to work on Dominican sugar plantations. Since they were willing to work for lower wages than Dominicans, Trujillo was able to stir up popular resentment against Dominicans by telling them Haitians were stealing their jobs When in reality, Haitian farmers did not want to pay Haitians a living wage because Haitian farmers were greedy and were treating their other Haitian countrymen poorly. On October 2nd, Trujillo ordered his army to cross the aptly named Massacre River, which formed part of the border to carry out a mass slaughter in Haiti. Now, you'd think that Massacre River would be a river you would never want to be near. However, that's apparently not the case. Over the next week, some 20... Thousand men, women, and children were brutally hacked and beaten to death just for being Haitian Trujillo's troops used machetes, bayonets, clubs, and other crude weapons in a lame attempt to give the appearance of a popular uprising by Dominicans too poor to afford guns. Not only a lame attempt, but a frighteningly horrific attempt as well. To determine whether someone they captured was Dominican or Haitian, the soldiers would make them pronounce the Spanish word for parsley. Perejil. If a person had difficulty rolling the Spanish R, they were deemed Haitian and killed. Judging by pronunciation, I guess I'm Haitian and I should be killed. Thus, the carnage became known to history as the Parsley Massacre. Later, turned out though that many of the bilingual victims had been of Dominican nationality. Despite all that, the United States would support Trujillo. Up until his death when Trujillo was assassinated by his own generals That's Rotten History, This Is Hell Tomorrow Here on This Is Hell beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time We'll have the return of Daniel Trilling Who will be on to discuss his article at The Guardian How rescuing drowning migrants became a crime Daniel is the author of Lights in the Distance Exile and Refuge at the Borders of Europe Which Daniel talked with us about back in 2018 You can find that interview by going to thisishell.com And searching on Trilling Daniel is also the author of Bloody Nasty People. We rise. I'm sorry. The rise of Britain's far right. We are looking for new volunteer board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell. As Alex runs the board, as Richard runs the board, as Theron has done in the past. All you have to do, if you are interested in being a board operator on our show, is email me. Chuck at this is Chuck at this, is this position comes with a very modest stipend, but you will have access to a professional studio where you can do your own podcast. Or if you're a musician, you can work on your own music here in this soundproof space. Of course, with the board operator position, we need you to live in the Chicago area. However, we will also be seeking help from those of you who can work with us remotely, stuff that can be done no matter if you live in London or Laos. You can be part of the This Is Hell crew wherever you live, so stay tuned in for that. And if you're interested in either remote work or working on the board, all you have to do, again, is email me, chuck at com. chuck at com. We also want to thank those of you who went to thisishell.com and clicked on support. Thanks to Yoni Lee. David, and Sarah for supporting completely listener-supported This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Richard Wood. Thanks to Rory Van Loo for being today's guest. Thanks to Richard for running the board. Thanks to Ronaldo for Rotten History. And special thanks to Theron and, all, as always, Alex for all the things that they do for the show. We told you so. This is Hell.